0: Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you're here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. So if you have been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been on this relationship series, and it's geared primarily towards those of us that may be married. But at the same instance, in any relationship, if you are single, if you are widowed, if you're divorced, if you are remarried, it all is applicable because relationships are what define us. What God has called and what He said in the very beginning of Genesis is that one thing in His creation was not good, and that was that man was alone. So He created woman, and He brought her to Him, and they married and lived happily ever after, right? Yeah, now you can laugh at that because Disney says yes, and the world would say, yes, you can. And the reality is, we live in a broken world because soon after, God brings Eve to Adam there is sin that enters in, and the, the relationship piece becomes very distorted. And so the world we live in is, we're designed for a community. So no matter how introverted you find yourself, meaning you don't really like people, you like to be by yourself, and those of us that are extroverts who just love people, when we come alive, the more people are around, we all need each other. We also need time alone, but some love time alone, and some are like, no, please don't put me in the library, I'll fall asleep, that's me. So we need each other, we need community. And so we need to learn how do we then engage in community with the relationships and friendships around us in a way that is God-honoring people edifying and kingdom-advancing. In essence, how do we fight fair in our relationships? Because it matters how we fight, and you could say you never fight, and the reality is you would be lying. Every one of us fights, there is conflict, and really what we need to remember is that because of sin, conflict is normal. That's maybe something that we don't resonate with, that we say, if I'm in the perfect friendship, marriage, relationship, we will never have an argument. And that is a lie. You are going to fight. You are going to have conflict. It matters how you deal with that conflict and how you go into it. So we have to, in a sense, normalize conflict, that it's normal. What's not normal is how we approach it and how we deal with it. And so if you're in the book of Acts, we kind of want to start here in Acts chapter 9... And what we come upon here is a guy by the name of Saul, and it starts this in chapter nine, verse one. It says, "But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." And who is Saul? Saul is this kind of who's who of the Jews. He is this guy that is thundered under the tutelage of Gamaliel, as the guy's name. So he is a robust zealot. He loves God and he doesn't like these Christians or these followers of the way. So he has been known to arrest them, to take them into prison and to hurt them. And so what he's doing here in 9-1 is he is breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord and he woes to the high priest to ask him for letters, basically permission to go to another town and to arrest them. And so he does. He does. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate or drank. And so we get this story that Saul, if you read a couple chapters prior, you read that he was at the stoning of a guy by the name of Stephen, and he gave approval. After that, there's great persecution that breaks out in the church, and Saul is at the forefront. He's young, he's energetic, He's on fire for God, and he doesn't like these people who are saying that the Old Testament has been fulfilled, and the Messiah has come in Jesus, and so as he's on his way to go take out more people, God meets him on the road. And the people who are with him, his basically entourage, don't see anything but hear the voice. Saul is blinded, and then in verse 16, you jump down there, and it says... God is speaking to a guy by the name of Ananias who is in this city who has heard of Saul. And God says, For I will show him, meaning Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to that, to, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He arose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So Saul goes into this village to kind of arrest and persecute Christians. He meets God on the road. A guy by the name of Ananias is in Damascus, and he hears about Saul coming. God says, I want you to go and talk to him. And it's like, God, wait, time out. This is the guy that arrests people like me. This is the guy that persecutes people who know you. Why would you tell me to go there? And God says, because he's going to suffer for me. He's going to actually be my champion in a sense. And so Ananias does the only thing he can do. He obeys. And it goes further on. You read the next few verses, and you find out that Saul, as he regains his strength, goes into the synagogue, he converts to Christianity, and he starts preaching. And he starts showing the Jews how in the Old Testament, Jesus is the Messiah and how his death and resurrection is the hope of the world. And you read in verse 23 that after many days, the Jews try to kill him. So here's the guy that's going to, the, going to Damascus to arrest people, converts to faith, starts preaching and evangelizing, and they start to stone him and persecute him. Now, mind you, this is all happening in a very succinct manner in what's going on. And so what you find there in verse 26, it says this and when Saul, when he had come to Jerusalem, so after he leaves, he's coming back to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid for him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It's that same concept that as he goes into Jerusalem, he is now a believer. Where does he want to go? He wants to go to church. But everybody in church knows that he is a sinner, one, but he's also their lead persecutor. So he doesn't want, they don't trust him. When we've been wronged in a relationship, when we've been wronged at any point, when someone comes back, we're a little wary of them to say, should we trust them? And in the church here, they're like, this is the guy that kills us. This is the guy that persecutes us. Why would we bring him into our midst? And so there's a guy in verse 27, but Barnabas took him brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who he spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And so what happens is some guy steps up named Barnabas, whose name means encouragement, and he vouches for Paul, who is Saul at the same point. We'll get to that in a moment. But Saul doesn't have the reputation. Saul is trying to join the church, and everyone in the church is saying, we don't want him. He's our antagonist. He's the bully. And so a vouch comes in from Barnabas who is known and says, you know me, you trust me. I'm vouching for this guy that his conversion is real, that he is who he says he is. And so they welcome him. And so things are hunky-dory, right? So Saul, young whippersnapper that he is, he starts to go on a missions trip. And if you jump to the next couple of chapters and you read in chapter 15, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council. There's some doctrinal issues in the early church. And there's issues of what is truth and what is not. We have what we have the scriptures here. What they didn't have in the early church is the scriptures. They had the Old Testament law code, but they didn't have the New Testament. And so there's arguments, there's dissensions. What is right? What do we keep? What do we not keep? What's new? All of these things. And so there's this conflict that breaks out. Paul and, Barnab- Saul and Barnabas are in the midst of it, and as they figure out what the doctrinal issues, is, what is truth and what is not, what we accept and what we don't. It's settled. And in verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit to the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, this is important. Paul has been on a mission, Saul has been on a missionary journey. He's with he's been with Barnabas. Because if you go back to his two chapters in 13, it reads this way: Barnabas and Saul are sent off. They go on this missions trip that they've been on, then they go back to Jerusalem. And in verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit of chapter 13, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so they go on this missionary journey really to plant churches. And so in the midst of planting churches, doctrinal issues wrap up. It's kind of like if we were a denomination, and we are a part of that denomination, and the denomination at its head has issues, we would send representatives to deal with those and to talk those through while we individually deal with it here. And so as they're on this journey, in chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Doesn't say why, doesn't say what, it just says that Saul and Barnabas were on this missionary journey planting churches, and one of their entourage named John left them high and dry. And they continued on, and they did the missionary work. It doesn't say what happened. It doesn't say why he left. It just says he left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. And then after they get back to Jerusalem, they deal with this doctrinal issue. They settle the doctrinal issue, and then they get sent off again. And Saul says, hey, at this point, he switched his name to Paul because Saul meant mud. People heard Saul. They thought persecutor. So his name is shifted to Paul at this point. He said, let's go back to those churches that we just planted, and let's encourage them. Let's help them. Let's, so we've figured out the doctrinal issues here. Let's go let them know where we landed and how this works. And so they start to go. Verse 37 of chapter 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take, take with them one who had withdrawn from them and Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work. So there's issues right there. This guy who plants most of the New Testament churches, who writes most of our New Testament scriptures, Paul, the guy that vouched for him to come into the church, Barnabas wants to take this guy, John Mark. And Paul is saying, this is the same guy who left them and abandoned them on the first trip. Why, oh, why would we take this same loser in Paul's head again to be left high and dry again? We have no idea what transpired or what happened. We just know he left them. And they continued on, and so it says that this is what happened. Verse 39, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul really didn't appreciate Mark's leaving the first time. And one commentator writes, And to some degree he seems to have lost confidence in him as a missionary companion as a member of his team. This reminds us that as great as godly as these men were and as great as work as they did, they still had problems. Conflict. Here's Barnabas who vouched for Paul to come into the church, who now they have the sharp disagreement, and it doesn't say what it's even over. It doesn't tell us. It just says there's a conflict, there's an issue. And the sharp contention really seems that it's less important than a doctrinal, what is truth, to be more of a personal issue. Paul took personal offense at whatever John Mark left and why he left them, but he has issues with it. And the reality is that God can use the dissension, he can use the disunity, but this can never be casually used as an excuse for our division. Now, God can redeem good out of evil, yet we are held accountable for the evil that we do, even if God ends up bringing good out of the evil. And in this situation, either Paul or Barnabas, or probably both, had to get this right with God and each other. These are two pillars of the old foundation of the church, pillars who have an argument. These great men of God, if they have conflict, you can bet you and I are going to have conflict. And what we don't know is what happens really next. At what point does anything happen? And what's really neat is if you hold your finger here, you go near the end of your Bible, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the end, Paul's concluding his message, And he's writing this letter to one of his pastors, one of the men that he mentored and trained, Tim. And we're going to be in 1 Timothy in a few weeks. But at the end of 2 Timothy, he writes this letter to encourage him to say, as you're preaching, as you're teaching, as you're leading the church, remember these things. And then he gives this instruction in verse 9 of chapter 4. Don't do your best to come to me soon, speaking to Tim, for Demas is in love with the present world, and he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, another city. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Now, that's not a bad thing. He has sent him out. And then Titus to Dalmatia. Again, another man that Paul has empowered and equipped and trained up to go to the church in Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Guy who wrote the book of Luke and Acts, same man right here. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. It's the same Mark that he's talked about in Acts When Paul is just starting out in his missionary journeys, he's a young whippersnapper, he's on fire for Jesus, he's all energy, sometimes thought enters the brain and it comes out the mouth without really processing, and he's been affronted and he's been hurt by this guy, John Mark, and at the near the end of his time in missions, he is saying, bring him back. Why? Because he is incredibly useful for the ministry which tells us that at some point between that time period in Acts and this time period in Timothy, there was reconciliation that took place. That conflict had happened, and at some point, these two men worked it out. And I think why God gives us the end is because it's one of those gray areas, I like to say, where I wish it would tell us what they did and the steps for reconciliation. And, in the, re- and in the reality is, each of us is different. And every relationship is different. And what healing looks like and reconciliation looks like in friendships and in different marriages is vastly different. And had he given us a one, two step program, we would just follow that, where reality, we're all unique and we're all different. What he wants us to know, and what you see here, is that at some point, they both probably said, I'm sorry for doing blank. And they got over the hurt and the pain, and they were able to forgive the other one to the point where it doesn't always come like this for the record. Just because you forgive someone, just because you say, "Okay, we're moving forward," doesn't mean you become BFFs. Things are just perfectly normal again. But in some cases, it does. And in this case specifically, John Mark is seen as a valuable asset. It's the gray. Life is black and white and gray all over. I say it all the time. Scripture has very black and white doctrinal truths to it. But life is very messy. And how we deal with people, we realize that people are messy and relationships are messy. And if we have friendships, some of our best friendships have probably been the ones that we've had a knockout, dragout fight one or two times with them. And what have we done with that? Well, we've actually grown in the midst of those arguments, in the midst of that conflict, if we've been able to kind of see beyond ourselves. So we have to learn to fight well, which is what the Scripture teaches on, is how do we fight? It needs to fight well. And we have, and some of us have to look at our history, our family of origin, because what you don't realize is that as you were growing up, I'm one of five. So my siblings and I worked out, duked out. We had fights. I was the middle, so I was the peacemaker. That's where my role fit. The middle children in here, you were the peacemaker. That's what you're known for. If you're the baby, you got away with everything. And the first child, you were really experimented on by your parents because they didn't know what they were doing. They are just figuring it out. But by me, I watched what my older two siblings did, and I said, I don't want to do that because I don't want to get caught or hurt. My younger siblings, I thought they got away with everything, especially my youngest sister. But as we would grow up and as we would fight, we learn things. So we would pick on each other. Part of in my household growing up, if we picked on you, that's how we loved you. But that's not how it was in my wife's family. So if that's my family of origin, if that's what I know and that's how I speak love to my siblings, you can imagine that if I, as I dated my wife, Alicia, as I got engaged, that if I start picking on her, that's me showing love, that's not how you show love in her family. So you can imagine some conflict has broken out in our marriage from time to time. And I had to learn, that was a mes- message I learned in engagement, is don't pick on her in front of other people. She's like, I'm fine with it. You want to rib me, you and me, cool. Don't do it in front of other people. She goes, because it just kills me, because I don't know that you're on my side. And though I know you're joking, it still hurts. And so I had to learn, oh, don't, when we're with others, I don't do that. No, me and her, yeah, I can pick and pull. But together and around others, don't do that, Nick. And it's a lesson I had to learn. It's a conflict of that made her feel a certain way. She had to bring that up to me. My pride wells up because I didn't mean it. I didn't do anything. I get defensive. And in reality, it's, it's not about me. I did something that made her feel a certain way. So it's me recognizing that and still say, I didn't mean it, but I still need to say, I'm sorry. I really didn't mean it. This is how I show but I will do better and to change and it takes everything in me at times because my pride wells up, I'm get defensive, I don't wanna do this, and then vice versa too. I bring something up, why well, did not mean that, Nick? And it's a give and take, it's a both and. It's learning to fight well, of learning how I grew up and how she grew up has shaped how we argue and fight. And how we argue and fight with our friendships. I never saw my parents fight. That's weird, I know. My wife's family's the opposite, she saw how they fight. They would, let's go right now in front. And I always felt that my mom was always on my side. She oh, it's okay, Nick. I'm like, yes, yes. And my dad would come in, all right, Nick, you're in trouble. I look at my mom, she goes, that's what your dad said. Mom, where's my reinforcements? Where's my ally? But she backed up my dad. And usually what would often happen is that they would have their conversation that I never got to see, which wasn't always helpful for me, in a private room, in their bedroom. And my dad would come back and maybe relent and show mercy because my mom talked to them and they talked it out. So you can imagine when I get into my marriage, what's my natural reaction when we have conflict? Oh, the sky's green. The sky's blue. Honey, how do you like the weather today? I see you're upset, but I don't want to acknowledge it. it If just ignore it, it'll get better. It doesn't. We've had to learn. We've had to grow. We've had to realize that conflict is normal. And as you grow up, there's certain things you don't want to repeat from your parents. Problem is, you've been trained by your parents, you've seen it, you're going to model it, and so it's acknowledging it and then starting to make the adjustments and the changes. How do you do that? Well, you have to own your part. You have to own, sometimes, Nick, I've learned to say, I'm sorry, and I didn't didn't do anything. Alicia told me, Nick, you just got to say sorry, but I didn't do it. It doesn't matter. I'll come back and tell you, I'm sorry for you having to say that, but you just need to say sorry. Okay. It's learned. How do we fight? And some of the things that we have to watch out for, there's warning signs that as we have conflict, if we don't learn it early, then as we grow, it will get worse and worse and worse and worse. And here's four warning signs. Uh, Craig Rochelle speaks to this from this day forward, five commitments to a fail-proof marriage. He gives these four warning signs, criticizing, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling. If you're seeing these happen in your relationships, in your marriage relationship, you have to be wary of these And he says this, he describes criticizing as this. Criticizing, people often confuse criticizing with complaining, but they're not the same. Complainers say, I wish we could have left when I wanted to. Critics say, you always make us late. Complaining is expressing unhappiness with circumstances. Criticizing is expressing disapproval of someone's character or decisions. Complaining is general. It may not be about anyone in particular. Criticizing is specific, and it is absolutely about someone. Contempt. Contempt means despising. You don't respect or value your spouse's opinion or perhaps even your spouse. You somehow feel your spouse doesn't deserve you or you've decided they're not good enough for you. Contempt often manifests in visible or audible ways. And when you say something, your spouse groans or rolls her eyes. They may speak to you with sarcasm and disdain. Contempt often begins in private where it's just the two of you. And as your spouse tries to keep up, appearances for outsiders but once contempt has put down roots, others outside the relationship will soon be able to see its branches blooming. Defensiveness. Defensiveness is one of the most common warning signs that you need some help. At least one spouse, and often both, refuse to accept any responsibility for the challenges facing the relationship. I don't do anything wrong. She's just mad all the time. Or he's a jerk. His spiritual gift is being an idiot. <laughs> we probably all have been there, right? It's recognizing these signs stonewalling. (laughs) Stonewalling is the passive aggressive method used by immature people to force getting their way. A person who stonewalls either may have already given up on the relationship entirely, or they're hoping they can just hold on until the present crisis blows over. Either way, this is another angle on refusing to accept responsibility. Whether it's changing the subject, when an issue comes up, dodging discussions, or refusing to acknowledge that a problem even exists. It's these warning signs. That when we fight, if these are commonly present, we have to adjust. That we can't just criticize the other person. We can't just see with them with contempt. We have to look at them a little differently. And mind you, every relationship, every marriage is unique and different. And part of the thing that, as Alicia and I, as we grow closer together in marriage, one of the things that we wrestled with early on was just that comparison trap that we see certain couples acting a certain way or doing. Things, and we're like, are we doing something wrong because we don't do that? It's like, no, it's us. How we function, how we thrive is going to be different. Now, there's things that are similar in marriages. There's some commonalities that should be similar. But every relationship is unique. Every marriage, every friendship is different. And there's some things that as I talk about this in marriage, there are some things in marriage where you get into that abuse, as I mentioned before, you get into some other things, That's not what this sermon really is focused on. In those situations, that is above and beyond what you work towards. And recognize that in this room, there is probably some marriages that are very unhealthy. There's probably people's experiences that have seen more of the abuse side, and they see some of this as, this is how I've survived, Nick, and I get that. This is what I'm talking about. When you have not normal friendships, but when you have friendships, you're going to fight. When you have a marriage, you're going to have fights, And when you want a healthy marriage, if you're keeping God at the forefront on both of you seeing that and both recognizing it's what do I do so far as it depends upon me to live at peace. And when there's abuse, when there's other things like that, you you can't argue with that or fight that or say, it's my fault. No, you just have to get outside help. But in a marriage, you want to fight and fight well. And so when it gets into this point, if we go back to if we go to the book called 1 Corinthians, going back to the left from 2 Timothy, Paul is speaking here again, this zealous guy who we mentioned at the start of the sermon in Acts, who is one of the pillars of the old church, foundation laying, that he has an argument with Barnabas. And as he goes on missionary journeys, he grows in his own faith and his own walk. And he gets in first and second Corinthians, you kind of get to know him personally. A little background info on Paul is that because of his nature of who he was, it says that he was pretty much a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was raised by Gamaliel, that he was an Orthodox Jew, kind of the who's who. He followed the steps exactly. And they would look at marriage at this point that if you were 20 years or older as a male, which he would have been at this point, if not older, when he became into faith, he would have already been married. We don't know anything about his wife. We don't know anything about... What happened, we don't even know for certain that he was. What we do know is is in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about the principles of marriage. But understanding that if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, if he was an Orthodox Jew, if he was raised as strictly as he was, then more than likely when he started and became a Christian, he was married. And at this point in 1 Corinthians 7, he is not married. And we don't know what happened. It never says in Scripture definitively that he was But assuming that he was at some point, either she has left or she has died. And when he says in chapter seven, we looked at this a little bit last week with Pastor Greg, but in verse eight of chapter seven, he says this To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. So it tells you at this point in ministry, at this point in his life, he's single. He's not married, he is single. And he says, I wish that, you, that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one to another, meaning that some of us are gifted in singleness. Some of us aren't. And he says, at this point, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Which sounds harsh, and that's not what his point is to be harsh. What he's saying is here, can you be content in the season of life that you find yourself in. That if you are single, to remain single. And if you're widowed, to remain widowed. He's saying, that's not everyone's gift, and you might have a draw to want and desire to be married, and that's not wrong. He speaks to that. He jumps down into verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, meaning those that are engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And I think that in the view of the present distresses, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. That's good to know. And if betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. That's his whole point. When you're married, you've taken one sinner and another sinner, and you're putting them in the same household. It's a recipe for a conflict. And he's saying, look, in the world, in the culture that they were in, as they, because they didn't have the Scriptures, they didn't know last days, and then looked at singleness almost as more pure than those that were married. And Paul's saying, no, no. If you're single, you're on the same playing field as those that are married. And if you come to Christ and you come to faith and you're, you're, you are married, don't divorce and go singleness and think that that's more holy. No. Remain where you're at. But understand that when you get married, you're going to have some trouble You're going to have worries. You're going to have stress. Going to have work. Going to pay the bills. What are some of the things married people worried about? Finances, kids, living preferences, families. Focusing on things that are of the world, that are right here and present, that we have to live with. But when you're single or when you find yourself in that position, it's you, 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 and you. And then you can make a decision that doesn't affect your spouse or your kids. And Paul is saying, Look, I just want you to spare some of that worldly stuff that comes in. He's saying, But it's not wrong. It's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. God orchestrated it. God created it in the very beginning. And Paul is saying, look, in the culture that he wrote this letter in is that singleness was more to be desired. That in the church in Corinth, what was happening is that as you came to know Christ and he said, don't be unequally yoked, they would come into church, husband or wife, they would get saved and their spouse wasn't. And so they would divorce their spouse to find this cute new guy or gal in the church and say, look, I'm supposed to be not unequally yoked. And Paul would say, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. If your spouse, even though you come to Christ later in life and they don't, if they continue in marriage, you stay, of course. Now, likewise, if they want to leave, then okay, and you're not bound, and I wish that someone remain as you are, but you're going to have trouble. You're going to have some arguments. You're going to have some issues, which means you need healthy ground rules when we argue, when we fight. So I give you a, i give a list of these of some of these ground rules that you can apply to your own marriage. One, no name calling. Don't call someone another name. Don't be mean. Don't raise your voice. And that was one of the ones that Craig mentioned. I and I also put in watch your tone. Because you cannot raise your voice but have this tone. And people know they're like, and my wife has called me on it. Nick, don't do that with your tone. I don't raise my voice. In fact, I get nice and quiet if I get really upset. She's like, watch that tone. And I'm like, because it is. Some of us are yellers. We've been raising that. We see that. We raise our voice. But why do we do that? We want to be heard. And the loudest one usually wins. And so it's watch your voice and watch your tone. James speaks to it. Be quick, be slow to speak and be quick to listen. So God has given us two ears to listen twice as much as we should speak. And active listening means that as you talk, you say, okay, I hear you saying this. And you may be really frustrated and really like I'm getting defensive and mad because my spouse or my friend is accusing me. But, you know, active listening, you can really diffuse the situation by just repeating back to them what they said. So you're saying that when I did this, you felt this way. Yes. Can't argue with feelings. They're their feelings. You can get defensive and say, well, I didn't mean that. No, you just kind of have to own it and say, I'm sorry that when I said blank, I made you feel this way. My intent was blah. And just some of that active listening skills by repeating back and watching your tone and not raising your voice can just bring the temperature and level down to be able to talk on a normal basis and to see the other person. Third is, don't get historical, which we can be bad at. We can have our phones and we can record the argument. We can take notes on our phone. We can go and type. We can write a journal. And the bad side with that is that when you talk about something, keep it focused on what is that topic right there? What are we talking about? Keep it there. Don't look historical. And what tends to happen is sometimes we bypass it. Like we were hurt. We were offended. We let it go. We did it again and again and again until finally the straw that breaks the camel's back hits and we just go, we unload on our friends or our spouses. Like, I can't believe you always did this. They're so like, whoa, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. And we probably have experienced this at times with friendships or even with marriage where we say something and we bring up the passage, you did it here, you did it here, you did it here, and it's like, whoa, this is the first time I'm hearing. And so it's not bringing up the historical, but when you deal with a problem, focus on the what is it right there. And if you've been offended, if you've been hurt by someone, you bring it up right then. Now, if they do nothing about it, yes, you can keep a little bit of a record and say, and well, we've talked about this, And bring it up like, look, we've talked about this before. When you say blank, when you do blank, this is how this makes me feel. And again, the goal is to have healthy fights, healthy communication. You cannot change the other person. You can't change them. I wish you could. You can't. Your role is to bring up that pain, bring up the hurt, and say, this is what you've done. And they have a choice then, they do, to acknowledge it, recognize it, and change and you change because you want to or you have to and you hope that they want to, sometimes it requires more and you bring in outside counsel, pastoral counseling, real counseling, nothing wrong with that. And you walk through some of these issues. 1 Corinthians 13,